So welcome to the postscript. Um, have you been doing anything funny lately? Oh, well, fun. Well, <laughs> not haha funny. End of summer, the beginning of fall season in Norway for artists is when you write all your applications for, you know, artist grants and a lot of the deadlines for, you know, money for film and that sort of stuff. So uh, I've mostly just been working with that. It's kind of hectic. Full on application mode. Yeah. And they're all on the same time. It's kind of annoying, <laughs> but I guess they're kind of similar. Often you use a lot of the same bits of text and regurgitate on that. Yeah. And then just have a, a template. Yeah. I haven't really been doing so much interesting stuff outside of that. I've been reading a little bit. I picked up the book by Jon Arid Lindqvist that uh, Let the Right One In is based on. Oh, yeah, yeah. For a long time, he seemed like a, an interesting author. You know, he, he writes horror books, but there are often a lot of, you know, social commentary and stuff. I think his different books, he's got one with zombies, one with ghosts. And Let the Right One In was his first book, I think. Vampire vampire Sorry. and you know the film is great it's awesome yeah it's one of my all-time favorites it's a really good movie yeah the swedish one yeah well the <laughs> american one is called let me in which i haven't seen but i might watch it after i finish the book It'd be interesting to see what sort of things they did with the adaptation and you know the book's great it reads really well it's like a quick read very enjoyable it has all of like the implications of the book but more you know typically the book gets to be a bit more grotesque and raw like this aspect of child prostitution is a lot stronger in the book. I mean, there's something odd about this. Uh, if you haven't seen the film, the vampire character is a young girl and she has a grown-up man who's her kind of familiar. He's kind of working for her. He's kind of a slave. He gets her blood because she's weakened at the state we meet her. You know, she's been an undead for several hundred years or whatever. Anyway, in the book, the way she finds him... Well, I mean, he's attracted to young, he's a paedophile and he doesn't want to be one, you know, and he has a lot of internal struggles, but he's really attracted to her. Also in the book, the question of gender is a lot more, you know, whether she's a boy or a girl. It's implied that she used to be a boy, but that she's no longer human. So gender doesn't really apply. And Oscar, the main character of the, the book and film, the young boy, he perceives her as a girl initially and... She asks him, would you love me even if I wasn't a girl? And he asks, oh, do you mean a boy? And she says, I'm not a boy either. And he says, he's, he'll still, you know, he's still interested in her. But um, so it kind of plays with a bit of like the gender fluidity and those things. It's quite interesting, the book. It's a very enjoyable read and it adds layers to the thing. So I would recommend it. And I'm actually not quite finished with it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out his other stuff because he seems like an interesting voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think those things that are more prevalent in a book are also things that are more difficult to sort of adapt or sort of themes to deal with in a movie format. Well, at least more difficult to get financed. <laughs> yeah, that, definitely. Like, it's just more... Like, it's stuff most people don't want to have anything to do with. Mm. You're freer to do stuff like that in books or... Um... But there's also subtleties. Like, we were talking slightly about this in the audition podcast, like the difference between a book and a film. Like, in a, a film, you're confronted with what a character looks like very directly. But in a book, you know, they might mention it, but you're not thinking about it all the time when you're dealing with a character. So, in the book... Oscar, the main character, he's kind of a fat kid, quite unattractive. And uh, the reason they call him Pig is because he's kind of pig-like, you know. In the film, he's he's kind of shy, but he's he's not unpleasant to look at. He looks like kind of an introverted, uh, he's quite thin. Adapting books with ugly children, you seldom cast children that are as ugly as they're described yeah. in the books. It's quite 
unfeeling to do that, right? You don't want to hurt hurt their feelings. Well, you can say that, but I think there's an unfortunate, you know, people who are not conventionally attractive or you know weird looking or whatever. They're often very interesting to look at as well. Like uh, in Hereditary, you have the young kid, younger sister. She looks really weird, you know. Her face is very interesting to look at, and it's played for creeps a bit. But I don't feel like it's exploitative necessarily. It's a bit uneasy, but I wish more filmmakers and financiers would open up for ordinary or weird-looking kids. Because a lot of the times, I don't think Let the Right One In is guilty of this. Because Oscar, you know, he looks he looks normal. He's not too cute or annoyingly, you know, kid-like. No, it doesn't really take much away from the movie but no but a lot of films do they make like the kids like very cute they have big eyes and it kind of just feels like you're not actually dealing with a person you're just dealing with an idea of a kid and that's annoying but i think more directors are just assistant to cast or to put on a casting call for like ugly or unconventional kids but i just want to see more of that in movies in general Mm. unconventional and more like stereotypically unattractive people because they often have like interesting visual aspects to them yeah i just find it cool to see see different people in movies because mm. often people are quite good looking in movies and different bodies and you actually one of my favorite sex scenes in films in terms of bodies that are un- unconventional it's an animated film it's a stop motion film by charlie kaufman called animalisa and if you haven't seen it it's it's not his best film but one thing that's quite striking about it is like these slightly overweight, slightly dumpy, slightly ordinary looking characters. They look a lot more ordinary than a lot of actors in films. And there's a sex scene that's it's kind of clumsy, it's kind of slow, it's very intimate and it's very like honest. And it's so weird that like that's the place where you can have one of the most honest and direct type of sexual scenes in a film that's not hyper aestheticized it's yeah. where you have puppets uh... i think sex scenes in movies are often the most difficult to get like honest mm. often it's uh even unintentionally often aestheticized in a certain way mm. whereas the sort of often clumsiness and sort of uh like the quotidianness the details like often it's not portrayed in a way that's like real life sex is so much more complicated mm. it's not just you know somebody banging somebody against the kitchen counter and just making out and having sex yeah and often it's not so much about like the visual stuff in film like the visual stuff is prevalent and there's so many other elements that are <laughs> you know meaningful and that carry weight whether it's awkward or nice there's a connection there's a personal connection and you can't really convey that as easily as just like a visual trope absolutely I completely agree. Um, I'm just, I'm a big proponent of putting more weirdness and awkwardness, like natural awkwardness in in movies. Often it's very aestheticized for often good reasons, but it's fun to see more believable situations, believable characters, even in weird settings, Mm. I think can do a lot to elevate a movie. A great example of that is actually um, a film that I'd like us to take on sometime later called The Greasy Strangler. It's like this really absurd and weird it's really funny it kind of has a tim and eric vibe it is deeply uncomfortable but it's also really funny and weird and it has you know a lot of these bodies that are just normal like normal naked bodies and it's almost shocking it also has some you know very unnormal bodies like not naturalistically weird but it has an interesting dynamic with that i'm sure whenever we get around to it that would be an interesting conversation yeah i think you see more of that in 
non-American movies. That was an American movie, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think, like, in general, there has been a sort of way of aestheticizing and sexualizing stuff in American movie tradition. Mm. Ever since, like, the ban on sexualization in Hollywood in the mm. 1930s, when you had a sort of period before that, before the ban, where you had a lot more weird stuff going on, and it was much more interesting. And then you have this sort of long tradition of prudishness mm. in American cinema because there was rules against it mm. and stuff. I mean, cinema was something quite different initially. I mean, you had these boxes that you'd peek into holes and you'd see like maybe a naked woman dancing or something. And, you know, the form of cinema as a screen where everyone can go and watch a film, that solidified a lot during the first few decades. So a lot of like the early like weird films and, you know, super short experimental stuff that wasn't necessarily made for the kind of cinema we expect today. Yeah, but, but I think it's a whole like pre-code cinema which i find really interesting do you have any examples of off the top of my head no but mm. there was a lot of in general a lot of movies that future like full-on nudity and stuff mm -hmm. that you just couldn't do after a while yeah. because of uh, studio rules and stuff and i think that has sort of influenced the way sex has been aestheticized mm. in american cinema uh, this is just my own personal belief i think that's pretty accurate yeah, yeah. And you don't really see the same thing in European cinema, where you often have full-on nudity and stuff, and mm. it doesn't have that prudish history, which I suppose there's interesting aspects to it, but... It varies a bit country to country, though. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Every country has its own cinema tradition, like, yeah. so there's, of course, variation, but... In the 70s, you'd have more of the um, the European, somewhat sensuous, like the Italian or the Swedish films. Yeah, like Danish, or, or uh, in contrast to, like, British movies. Yeah, because they were quite, you know, Puritan <laughs> and, you know, rigid in terms of its willingness to portray body uh, and uh, yeah they, they were quite rigid in a yeah. and, and very sensor heavy in many ways for sure but i find it fascinating that the way sex and sexuality is portrayed in movie history it's so different from place to place and time to time and country to country and often has been criminalized and stuff so. mm. like a lot of the movies we discuss has <laughs> yeah. caused huge uproars and, and scandals and lawsuits mm. and uh, people are just some people are just really afraid to see a dick on screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, then don't watch Nymphomaniac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't. Definitely don't. Yeah, there's something threatening about the body naked and engaging sexually. I'm not quite sure why, as a society, it's so threatening. But there's obviously for, you know, a lot of societies do have very strict rules about these things. Like sex is so central to our sort of, like from nature's side, our role is to procreate, right, and create more life. And in all animal species, you see this sort of protection of the sexual, like sexual intercourse and offspring and sorts of things are very vital to the species' success. So the, they are viewed quite territorially in a lot of species. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's just social mores or whatever. Mm. It's not just culture. It's something that we adapt culturally because it's ingrained somehow from nature's side. But I think also it's completely unnecessary in most cases. I just hate moralism in all its forms, and it takes a lot of guises. And I think it's very harmful to art. Well, it can stir up controversy, and it can make people aware of your piece of art or movie or whatever. And that is maybe one of the, <laughs> one of the ways in which it can be positive. But in general, it's just stifled art throughout the ages, I think. And it's one of the reasons I love offensive uh, uh, cinema, for instance. It sort of transcends those boundaries. And if you deal with that shit, actually it can take you to some places that aren't normal to go in cinema. I find that very appealing. Mm. 
you have any uh, examples of, of sex scenes that you think managed to, you know, transcend like the normal tropes? Well, I think Lars von Trier, generally the way he handles sex scenes, it's quite interesting and naturalistic and clumsy often and weird. Of course, he often aestheticizes the hell out of it, but mm. it can also be very unpleasant. And he has a full range of <laughs> modes of portraying yeah. sexuality that I find very convincing. I don't know. It's It's an interesting subject. What about you? Do you have any... Yeah, I mentioned the animalesis scene. That one stands out. It's actually a very interesting contrast to the, you know, many years before that, there's the um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, like the South Park fame. They had this film called Team America, and they have a scene about puppets having sex and how stupid and funny that is. And yeah. they put in all these, you know, eating shit and uh, word positions. And, you know, these are... You know, marionette puppets, so they're on string and difficult to control. So, I mean, that's a different thing from stop motion. But it's interesting how, how they kind of talk about puppet sex as this, you know, totally ridiculous, idiotic thing. And the other one managing to create like a very vulnerable and, you know, true to life. So another movie I think that portrays sexuality in a very believable and funny way is uh, John Cameron Mitchell, the guy who made Hedwig and the Young Ridge. He directed a movie from 2006 called Short Bus. And it has a lot of very funny and believable and very, like, unshying mm. sex scenes. Especially scenes of, like, gay sex and stuff. They linger. Like, they show the full, like, full sex. Yeah, it starts off, doesn't it, with uh, a scene of a guy sucking his own dick. Is that the opening? I seem to recall, at least. Isn't there, like, somebody who's, like, singing the national anthem while uh, licking someone's ass or something? Like, okay. it, it has, <laughs> like, some funny, funny scenes. And yeah. it's... It's very human and believable. Yeah. I like that sort of mode of presenting it because it's so in contrast to the, the normal mode of portraying mm. sex scenes. Another example that is horrible because it's both aestheticized and lingers way too long mm. is, of course, The Room by Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> we have these 10-minute long sex scenes where you just fucking focus on Tommy Wiseau's weird ass or plowing away. It has this sort of uh, soft core vibe to it. Yeah. And it's just... It's really, so tacky. It's so tacky, but it's funny at the same time yeah. because it's so tacky. I, I find Tommy V so interesting because I don't think he's ever managed to do something as interesting as The Room because mm. she's sort of in on the junk now and it stops being compelling once the sort of terrible cinema is in on the joke. It's why Ed Wood is fascinating, right? Because he legitimately didn't sort of understand how terrible what he was making was. Well, he was quite sincere. Yeah, but now Tommy V so is like making these obvious attempts to sort of recreate a sort of mm. the room-esque thing but it doesn't quite work i haven't seen any of his newer stuff but he you know he directed an episode for tim and eric awesome show great job and that was quite good <laughs> they said it was horrible to work with him yeah but it's quite a good episode and it's very funny in it yeah, yeah I, I heard interviews with them where they talk about working with him and the trouble was exactly that they wanted him to make something good like yeah. that he thought was good but he wanted to make like some some crazy uh, comedy shit, right? Mm. The trouble is he's not very funny. So the only way he's funny is if he's trying to be legitimate. So I don't know. <laughs> he's a weird guy. But yeah. I, I, I like him nonetheless. I, I appreciate him. I just wish he would tackle a serious, dramatic subject yeah. again. I think that would be amazing. If he'd never been discovered and he just made four or five movies and then someone suddenly pointed the finger and said, look at this shit, it's too insane to be true. Yeah. Then we'd have uh, several of the rooms, maybe. Yeah, it's too bad, it's <laughs> too bad. But there's always going to be somebody out there with a dream in their head and no talent. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray for <laughs> to them. To make the next uh, cult classic. Yeah, I can't wait for that shit. But uh, you've, been, you've been reading anything interesting? I've been reading, like, the same books I've talked about earlier that I'm... I, they're big. Yeah. It takes me a while to get through them. At the same time, I've been... 
I've found a very pleasant combination of things to do. I've found I'm playing a game now called SnowRunner, and it's basically this off-road sort of trucking sim where you go to these extreme climates like Alaska and Siberia, and you like get assignments to get like heavy loads of timber or like metal planks and stuff, and you deliver them over like muddy terrain and snowy terrain. And it has re like really good terrain simulation, okay. and it's often <laughs> quite difficult and infuriating, but okay. at the same time, kind of like sun-like in the like the journey. And I, as I'm doing that, I'm listening to podcasts, so it's very. But it's a driving simulator, right? Yeah, it's a driving yeah. simulator. But I think that's a great combination to listen to podcast or music. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You're stimulating two different, like a mechanical, just satisfying. You're you're doing something physical in a way, yeah. And you're also stimulating the mind with you know information or. Yeah, it's very nice. Because because you can't really listen to podcasts or, or listen to music with all games. No. Like, especially story-heavy games. Yeah. But these games where you're sort of performing a mundane mm. task, mm. it's really zen. Mm. It's just really, really pleasant. I guess it's kind of like, uh, I don't have a driving license myself, but, you know, if you're driving in the car and, like, it's raining and you're listening to Biosphere. Yeah. Like, that's that's perfect. Yeah, Isn't it is. It, it, magical? It, does, it does take, like... It sort of occupies all your senses in a way that it's similar to meditation, uh, where you're just sort of let you, you don't you don't actively try to block stuff out. It just mm. happens naturally by keeping yourself occupied on all sort of points. But it's sort of an antithesis to meditation, but it works the mm. same way. You don't have lots of stuff bothering you, like mm. thoughts and stuff. It's it's quite zen and it's very very nice. Yeah, you're stimulating a lot of impulses, but you're also relaxing at the same yeah, time. Sure. Very satisfying, actually. And it's super entertaining yeah. if you're listening to some fun shit. Mm. Yeah, games like that, and although I haven't played it, I'm sure I would love it, like Trucking Simulator, mm. Euro Truck Simulator, games like that. Also like games like Sims, where you just build stuff mm. and all those sorts of things. I think it's quite therapeutic in its own way. Well, there are two games like that that I really like to try that I haven't yet. One is, the, it's uh, I think it's Forza Horizon 4 which is this driving game where you just have these big landscapes. You can basically drive wherever and it's like really nicely simulated, but it's not like a very complicated like driving simulator. I think it's like it's only Xbox or Windows 10 or whatever, so I don't have it available. But that's the thing I, I think I would really like to play if I was, you know, playing and listening to podcast or listening to music. And the other one is a new game. It's called Microsoft Flight Simulator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's the entire world mapped through like a version of Google Maps or whatever. And you can basically find your own house. Well, it, it does have an algorithm and yeah. not everywhere is like yeah. it, it places buildings like Circa. I think uh, Buckingham Palace was like a big warehouse, for example. <laughs> yeah, you, and uh, you can like get packs mm. and like add-ons. Of course, mm. it costs a lot of money to get all that stuff. But uh, th those kind of... It's funny you mentioned that mm. because the reason I started playing SnowRunner was because I watched uh, a Scottish comedian, Limmy, on yeah. Twitch. <laughs> and he plays these... He plays Microsoft Flight Simulator oh. and he plays SnowRunner and he, he plays these very slow-moving, like traveling games. Mm. At the same time, he's one of the funniest guys uh, I know of. Yeah, he's it's, it's just hilarious. Yeah. Like lately, he's been talking about, or he's been he's been like going on and on about it every time he streams. Okay, uh, it's this uh, live show by the band called White Snake, <laughs> and the lead singer David Coverdale, I think, or maybe I, I'm misremembering that. Either way, it's 2005 or something, and they're like way past their prime, and they're mm. in London. Mm. They're playing, or they're going to play, Is This Love. Is that the famous one? Is this love? Is this love? Is, is this love? It's famous. Uh, but yeah, David Coverdale is standing there, and he's trying to hype the audience up, and he gets a bouquet. Mm. 
And it's like, but I don't have a vase and stuff. And he's, he's just, he seems really like pretentious and he's like, nice tits. <laughs> and, and, then he, and then he goes, it's so funny because Limi does his voice, but he does it in like an exaggerated way. I can't do that, but he's like, <laughs> got a question for you, London. Is this still the city of love? <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh yeah. Is this the city of love? London, got a question for you. Is this love? And it's just, it's so stupid. London, it's its not the city of love. Like, what, what's he going on about? It was just, and, and like throughout his limited streams, he's like playing Snowrunner. He's like driving through some shit. And he's like, this is the city of love? <laughs> I just find it so funny. Oh, that's nice. It's a, some internal humor. There. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Limmy is great. I, I really love his uh, Limmy show and the homemade Limmy show. Yeah, it's some of the best shit. Uh, I haven't I seen so much show. of his streaming, but I do know he makes he makes some music and uh... yeah, he makes music. It's oh god, it's so <laughs> funny. He's like he's one of the most naturally funny people ever, and he he seems so emotionless. It's funny because he he never cracks up at his own jokes. He's yeah. like always serious, and he's always like very seems very grounded, almost like uh, apathetic. Mm. I know he's like struggled with depression and mm. stuff. Like he's he's dealt with some issues, but he he's just so funny. Like he goes and he tells these stories and stuff mm. about mundane shit happening to him, and I mean, it makes it sound really funny because. He has one of those, like, uh, one of the really good talents to have when you do comedy is just a way of observing stuff mm. from a really weird angle. One of the things that I really like about him personally is a lot of these casual, mundane observations that I really identify with. For example, he has this in, I think it's the Homemade show, where he's sitting in a couch at home and he's looking over at a shoe on top of a shelf. And he says, oh, that, that shoe, yeah, that looks like a, a normal shoe. I'm going to go look at that shoe. And he walks over and it films and he picks it up. And then when it intercuts, it's a kid's shoe. And he says, oh, oh that's a kid's shoe. This looks like a normal shoe just now. Okay, it's a kid's shoe. That's weird. Okay, I'm going to put it back. And he goes down and sits. And he looks over it again. And it's a normal shoe again. And it kind of just plays on, you know, how memory and observation is kind of fluid and confusing and he has a lot of situations like that where you're imagining or misremembering yeah. or you're uh, conf confused in a he way often, he often goes to those situations where you're you can't quite trust your senses and yeah. you're, you're like a bit confused and you're not sure what's going on and you're it really takes you to this place of uncertainty mm. he's really good at that yeah and at the same time, he's really funny. Yeah, he's, he's great. I, I love his American accent. It's so, <laughs> yeah. it's so weird. But I, I love it. I only recently, I think I discovered him maybe a year ago. But he's been doing it for a while. And I'm not sure why he didn't show up on my radar until recently. But, he's been um, doing it since like all of 2010s. Yeah. Even earlier. I think. Mm. I think he had like a podcast in 2006. Like he's been doing comedy for a long time. Yeah. But yeah. I've been watching most of his stuff in retrospects, uh, not having seen it at the time. Yeah, but his streams like two times a day, so it's easy to just catch a stream and him yeah. just going about some really mundane game and, and uh, having some absurd <laughs> commentary. Mm. I'd actually recommend checking that out. Yeah. And it's good to support him too, because like that's what he mainly does now, is streaming. So. Yeah. Well, actually, I've I picked up, um, I had before as well, but your earlier recommendation of Ex Anima, the game, as in animation or like reanimating or something well it's a lot to do with like the main plot revolves around a necromancer mm. i think yeah and i had played it a bunch before and like managed to get a character with some armor which i mean it takes a bit of time but it was nice to pick it up again i mean you've got to learn the combat system and it's yeah. really like the learning curve is quite high but once you master it it's really satisfying yeah it's really well made and very sort of enjoyable one of the things i really like about it is like transversing like the levels is initially quite perplexing 
and you stumble a lot and it has like this physics engine where you, it feels like physical things hitting physical things. So let's say you're holding a sword, you're scraping it against the wall, you're trying to walk through the doorway and it kind of bumps in so you can't get through. And I love that physicality of it because yeah. it really feels like you're present in the game. Yeah. It doesn't feel gamified. Like there's actual physics simulation in, in every aspect of what you're doing, mm. which makes it feel a lot different because... I compared it to Dark Souls, and it does feel a lot like Dark Souls in its mm. sort of overall atmosphere, mm. the way you're just thrown into the world without no explanation, mm. and you're sort of reading bits and pieces and finding mm. little nuggets of information. But the sort of physicality of the game is so different. It really feels like you're present in the world, and it makes the fights that more like terrifying. Yeah. When you meet an enemy, you can't beat because literally anything can kill you there. Yeah. No matter how powered up or how much armor you have, just a bit of bad luck. Yeah, if something hits you hard in the head, you're basically gone. Yeah. You're dead. And another aspect I really like of the game is is the in-game maps. Yeah, because I was about to mention, actually. There are physical objects in yeah. the game, and yeah. there's no, like, auto map. You can't see where you are in the map. You mm. sort of have to think about it as if you found yeah, a map in and, your life. And you have to work hard at understanding where you are and recognizing rooms. And when you come to, like, a new area, that's what you start to do, because you don't have the map initially. You might find it later on. Or you might not, because some stuff is so well hidden. Yeah. There's so much hidden stuff. That's what Dark Souls does as well, uh, interestingly. There's, you, you have to like physically navigate the space and learn it and relate to it in a way that's very satisfying. Because what I often find in games that use a lot of maps... Fast travel and stuff. Yeah, well, it disengages you from the environment and it makes totally. it feels less real and less interesting in a way. Also games with a lot of HUD, like a lot mm. of sort of objects on screen with mm. like health and inventory and all mm. this sort of stuff and like pointers mm. and, and compass and all these sorts of things, mm. they detract you from the game world. Mm. Like in Skyrim, you mm. have like quest markers and stuff. Mm. So you don't really look at the world. You look at the marker and you follow the marker and you sort of transverse the mm. environment in a way that gets you to the marker. And that makes you engage less with the world and you're just like... Um errand boy doing chores. Yeah, doing fetch quests mostly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's been a trend for a really long while and like the opposite trend. There's been examples of it for a long time, of course, but I think Dark Souls really kind of inspired a lot of people to think that you don't really need maps or that you use maps differently. But also it brought gaming difficulty back to a level it mm. hadn't been for a while, mm. like back to like Nintendo difficulty mm. where you often couldn't save and you just had to fucking mm. get there on your own, mm. like mm. through pure skill. You couldn't just save and load and save and load. Of course, Dark Souls, you can load and save. And eventually you get like fast travel, hub travel and stuff. Also, you can't really die. You just lose points. No, but it's an interesting system. But like with the sort of resurgence of roguelikes and stuff, mm. you really get that difficulty level. And this sense of achievement when you actually get somewhere in the game. Mm. Because you had to do it through skill. You couldn't rely on the cheesing everything. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting, yeah. Lots of good stuff in this world to check out. I think that's actually it for this episode. Yeah. So uh, thank you for listening in. Music for this episode was done by Svare Ogor and Juskarning, the band Umulium. My name is Thomas Simonsen Bonbra. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com or check out our Instagram. Just search for unpleasantmovies at Instagram. There's a lot of artwork and daily quizzes for unpleasant movies there hell yeah and you know take care i just have one thing to say oh really is this still the city of love that's all i'm wondering <laughs> it never was it never, <laughs> it never fucking was, was. <laughs> oh yeah 
See ya. Goodbye.